Uh, this morning as we get started, I'm going to read to you the uh, words from one of the mountain peaks of Scripture, uh, the Everest, perhaps, of the Old Testament. As we begin our message today, I will read to you from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Why do we need rules? I'll never forget one night uh, in my seminary days, I was driving to New Orleans Seminary from our home uh, in Tennessee for a couple of weeks worth of classes on campus. And because money was tight, we were a young family pastoring a small rural southern church, not a lot extra to go around. I would bring with me a little, you know, dorm refrigerator so that I could shove sandwich stuff in it and not have to eat out all of my meals uh, when I was in New Orleans for these intensives. And as I was driving through Laurel, Mississippi, anybody ever been to Laurel, Mississippi? Man. As I was driving through Laurel, Mississippi, late one Sunday night to start classes on Monday, the streetlights illuminated the cab of my truck, and I just happened to look down and see a warning label on my refrigerator box that I had never before seen. Here's what it said. Do not use in water. And I remember thinking, why is that label there? I mean, is that a thing? Really? I mean, are are people really putting refrigerators in water? And then it occurred to me 
That label was on the refrigerator because some brain surgeon at some point said, you know what, I bet that refrigerator looked good in my pool. And his widow sued the company saying, how was he supposed to know? So lawyers created a rule to inform proper refrigerator use. Why do we need rules? Because without them, we'll try to have an underwater refrigerator and a whole lot of other things far more dangerous and of far greater eternal consequence. And this is true of the Ten Commandments. In Galatians 3.24, a man named Paul wrote that the Ten Commandments and the laws that flow from them served at one time as our guardian, as our tutor. The image he has in mind was that of someone known in Roman times as a pedagogos, someone who would teach the basic rules of social engagement to pre-adolescent and adolescent boys. We need those guys now, right? There was a, a job to do for them, and that was to tell these boys, do this, don't do this, in order to keep them safe and functioning in a healthy way in Roman society. So when Paul says that the Ten Commandments and the rules that flow from them were our tutor, he says that they were providing for us at one time the rules for safe and functional engagement with God in order for that relationship to not go south. Without these rules, you see, we would be in mortal danger. This was their function in Israel. They provided the rules. They were a tutor for the Jews to follow and remain faithful to their covenant with God. But that's really just a surface level understanding of the Ten Commandments. There are layers of meaning here that I, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning making sure that we grasp. I may disappoint some of you because maybe you were thinking, man, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Ten Commandments and we're going to hit all of them in one sermon. If you want to hear a sermon on every one of them, we've got them somewhere. I did it 11 years ago. But what I want to do today is I want us to expand our focus beyond the individual rules to survey them from a distance so we can see comprehensively what it is they are saying to us. Because what it is they are saying to us may be things that we've never before considered. Here's the first thing, taken as a whole, that the Ten Commandments communicate to us. The Ten Commandments show us God. They don't show us about God. They show us God. One of the biggest misconceptions we have about the Ten Commandments and the morality that they outline is that they're somehow arbitrary. In other words, we accept that God made the rules, but we just kind of think he created them by sitting in heaven and say, well, what am I going to like and what am I going to not like? Now, I'm going to decide to do this, let's say stealing, and I'm going to say that that's wrong, and conversely, not stealing is good, and so he writes that down so he doesn't forget it. In other words, we think that God with the rules like the Ten Commandments, just made stuff up. But that's wrong. I want you to look to the screen. It's going to show you uh, a verse from a, a book just a few after Exodus. Moses speaking to the people of Israel. He says, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. Let's read it again. You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and fearing him. What I want you to see as that remains up there is the correlation 
between keeping the commandments and walking in the ways of God. I want you to see that this verse tells us that when we walk, when we live according to his ways, we are keeping the commandments. That verse is telling us then that the commandments tell us what God is like. And to live by those rules allows you to live life as God himself lives it. Here's a simpler way of putting it. The, the commandments are a mirror of God's character. They show us what he is like. They don't tell us what he likes and doesn't like. They tell us who he is and is not. And I can do that, I think, fairly quickly by just going commandment by commandment to show you what I mean. The first commandment, verse 3, he's the only one worthy of worship. That's what that commandment tells us. The second commandment, verse 4, he can't be confined to a single image. Israel is going to learn that in a few more weeks in our journey through Exodus. Commandment 3, verse 7, he's worthy of reverence. Commandment 4, verse 8, he's totally trustworthy. That's what's behind the Sabbath, taking a day off, God will provide. Uh, The fifth commandment, verse 12, he values the family. The sixth commandment, verse 13, he values life. The seventh commandment, verse 14, he values marriage. The eighth commandment, verse 15, he is just. The ninth commandment, verse 16, he is honest. Verse 18 in the 10th commandment, he is generous and fair in what he gives to us. Do you see what I mean? Each of these commandments is a prism from which the spectrum of God's character is seen. This should show us clearly why disobeying the commandments, why sin is such a heinous thing. It is, it is holding who God is in complete disregard. I want you to think about it this way, understanding that sometimes the very best way to make a point is through an absurdity. Let's say that I had the worst peanut allergy in the history of humankind. Now, that would not be a choice that I had made. I wouldn't have awakened one day and said, you know what I think would be fun? I think it'd be fun to have a peanut allergy so bad that I might die if I'm in the room with even a single one. I wouldn't have made that choice. It would just be a function of my biology. I'd have absolutely no control over it. I couldn't decide or not decide to have a peanut allergy. Now, what would it say about you, knowing that about me, were you to see me and just smear peanut butter all over my face? It'd make you weird, number one. But it would also say that you have no regard for me as a human being. You don't care anything about me. I know that that could kill you. I don't care. I'm going to do this. And the commandments show us that same kind of thing when we sin. The commandments are who God is. They are not who he's decided to be. And knowing that about them, when we disobey them, we are showing complete disregard and disrespect for God. So when we look at the Ten Commandments and all the rules that flow from them, we need to be asking ourselves 
over and over again what they show us about the character of God because the commandments are a mirror of God's character. The commandments show us God and inversely, the Ten Commandments show us our heart. And by that I mean that the commandments mirror our character just as much as they mirror the character of God, it's just that they do so in less flattering ways. They show us how deeply we are bent away from walking in the ways of God. As we did before, let me show you what I mean by walking through each individual commandment. The first commandment shows that we're spiritually adulterous. The second commandment shows us that we are prone to imagining God in ways that suit us and ignoring the parts that challenge us. The third commandment, we want to treat God like a lucky rabbit's foot. The fourth commandment, we trust ourselves to get ahead, so we're not going to give God that day. The fifth commandment, we cheapen the family. The sixth commandment, we cheapen life. The seventh commandment, we lust The Eighth Commandment, we think might makes right. If I want it, I'll take it. The Ninth Commandment, we're liars. The Tenth Commandment, we think we deserve more than what God has given us. I want you to think back to my dorm room refrigerator when we started today. We need the rule because left our own devices, we're going to try out an underwater refrigerator. Left to our own devices... We're going to worship our jobs, or we're going to worship our possessions, or we're going to worship the chief idol in Johnson County life, our family. We think of God as wanting to bless us, but we ignore the plight of those who are less fortunate. Uh, We want Him to bless our plans. We don't want to submit to His, and on and on it goes. The rules exist because they show us something that would not otherwise occur to us, that how we are naturally inclined to live life is the exact opposite of the way that we were created to live life. They show us that we were meant to live for so much more and we lost ourselves, to quote a song. So, with all of this information, knowing that the commandments show us positively who God is, And negatively, who we are, most people set out in life to do right by them, to follow them to a T. Even people who don't consider themselves very religious will often tell you that they try to guide and build their lives by the Ten Commandments. And most people, even those who are not very religious, will tell you that they feel like they're doing pretty good by them. They'll tell you that, you know, I measure up pretty well, quite nicely as a matter of fact. They're like the wealthy young man who one day approached Jesus wanting to know the pathway to eternal life. And Jesus begins that discussion by pointing them to the Ten Commandments. And the young man's thrilled when he does that because he says in Luke 18, 21, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. I've got these nailed. Eternal life must be in the bag for me. And again, most people, even those who do not consider themselves to be very religious, will tell you the same thing. I must be in really, really good shape. 
But what does the Bible tell us about our relationship with the commandments? Earlier, I mentioned Paul's description of the commandments as our guardian, as our tutor in Galatians 3. What I failed to mention was that he also shared what kind of students we were. And what he said was that we were captive to the law, imprisoned in Galatians 3.23. Now let me just ask you a simple question. Who goes to prison? People who break the law. So then what Paul is telling us about every person's relationship to the law is that we are all lawbreakers. Like the rich young man, we think that we have kept them since our youth, but, but by and large, we never really think past the depths of them and see ourselves as the lawbreakers that we are. That's what Paul says, and so does Jesus. The reason we let ourselves off scot-free in commandment-related matters is because we only, only view them as external as things we must do, as actions that we must perform. But Jesus says that there's more to them than that. In a section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lectures another group of people who believed that they were Ten Commandment model citizens. And he says this, for instance, in Matthew 5, 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Drop down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see what Jesus is doing. He's telling us that the Ten Commandments aren't a metric for our actions. This is the most important thing I'm going to say all day. The Ten Commandments are not a metric for our actions. They are a metric for our heart. So go ahead, look at the commandments and say, good for me. I haven't killed anybody today. Pretty low bar, I think, to clear. But Jesus is saying, if you lost your temper with someone and exploded ever, you're guilty of the spirit of the commandment, you shall not kill. So the commandments are a mirror of our character in the opposite way, that they are a mirror of God's. They show us our undeniable guilt before God. No one who truly takes the commandments seriously can absolve themselves of guilt or reject the verdict of themselves as lawbreaker. It's little wonder then that Paul stitches together Old Testament writings and proclaims these words beginning in Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What then? Are the Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All have sinned. As it is written, verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. 
All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And the paths, in their paths are ruin and mercy. And the way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, in other words, we as people have been complete lawbreakers of everything that God has shown us about himself. And so, why do the Ten Commandments exist for us? To make us feel guilty? To make us feel bad? Is that what God's wanting to do for us? Of course not. God is good. And he wouldn't give us something just strictly to make us feel condemning thoughts. There's a glorious purpose, a wonderful and merciful purpose behind the Ten Commandments. And this is the third thing I want us to see today. The Ten Commandments show us our need. They show us our need. In other words, the Ten Commandments show us the need we have for God's grace. I've already shown you how they should, how they should cause us to sense our shortcomings in keeping them and thus our need for grace. But the need for grace in the commandments is even more obvious than that. In fact, it, it leads with grace. Have you ever thought about that? The Ten Commandments lead with grace. And I'll show you how. Look at the screens. In Exodus 20, verse 1, God speaks all these words saying, note how this flows, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He makes a declaration about what he's done. And in light of what he's done in redeeming the people of Israel from slavery and making them his people, the commandments flow to show how to keep that relationship that God started by his grace and by his mercy in a healthy, healthy way. Israel loved God because God first loved them. The commandments didn't lay out for Israel how to have a relationship with God. If that were the case, as we've already seen, there would have never been a relationship because they would have been an impossible standard to live up to. So the commandments don't tell Israel how to find their way to God. God found them and redeemed them. The commandments instead tell Israel how to live in a vibrant relationship with God who by His grace had already redeemed them. From slavery. And the same is true for us. Were the commandments a pathway to our salvation, the road to God would forever be blocked by our sin. Indeed, there is no one righteous. No, not one. But Paul, who I've talked about a lot today, says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, even when we were enslaved by his grace, he has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God shows us our need for grace in the rules. Only a self-righteous, superficial person could look at the standard of the Ten Commandments and conclude that they somehow vindicate 
before God. A humble person, fully appreciative of their sin, dark and distance from a holy God, will look at their slavish devotion to iniquity and conclude that if they are ever going to be right by God, it is going to take a God-driven, God-sized miracle. And a saved person will realize joyfully that that God-sized miracle's name was Jesus. And the payment for our law-breaking that he made himself on the cross. And in light of that, they joyfully participate in God's work to remake our lives to look like his from the inside out. It's amazing when you stop and look at how the Old Testament and the New Testament connect with one another. That verse from Deuteronomy I read earlier talked about walking in the ways of God by keeping his commandments. So Paul, when he gets to Colossians, says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He's saying, as you have been set free through Jesus, walk in the commandments so that your life becomes a vehicle through which Jesus lives his life out on earth through you. That's the opportunity of being saved. And the only way that you can have that kind of wonderful opportunity is to admit what we are hardwired to never admit of ourselves, and that is we'll never be good enough. We'll never be good enough. I don't care how many I's you've dotted and T's you've crossed. You've never been good enough. I know it will shock you, but I was a good boy. I was a good boy growing up, I was a good boy in college. I mean, there ought to be a badge for that. But I am as deserving of hell as the worst sinner you can imagine. And when I realized that, God saved me through Jesus. And that's what he wants to do for for you today. He wants to save you. Why all the rules? Because without them, we'd never know the need that we have for the only one who can save us, and that is Jesus. And if you have never given yourself to him, I want to give you that opportunity to do it right now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.